This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode focusing on terrorism and surviving violent encounters, featuring portions of conversations with Maley Chapin, Ayan Hershey Ali, Gavi Friedson, Marcus Torgerson, Tony Blauer, and Eli Kafori. Here they are. Maley Chapin. In 2019, Maley survived an attack at a hotel complex in Nairobi, Kenya, by Al-Shabaab terrorists that left 22 civilians dead. She credits former SAS operator Christian Craighead with saving her and hundreds of others. Her harrowing ordeal, subsequent struggles with PTSD, and how she fought to overcome that trauma is detailed in her book, Terrorist Attack Girl. Here's Maylie. What an incredible conversation to have when a day okay. later, essentially, that phone becomes your lifeline. In, oh, good way to put it. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a situation that is just—I mean, I mean, I mean, to capture it in here. I mean, well, we saw it on the news, especially those of us in you know the security field and that sort of thing. Special operations, of course, we see that the the lone person going in in his jeans, like who is that guy? And what's that black beard patch? And then now <laughs> to know to know him now is so is incredible because you, as you know, so humble and like oh. an amazing person. Um, but at the time, it's just this person that like. It goes in on his, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So we knew about the event from that side of it, just like larger and Al-Shabaab. Okay, what are they doing? But not from this perspective. Like no one's told this perspective and very few people have ever told this perspective ever. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's so, so moving. So that having that conversation and then having this phone be your lifeline and then also not having it go down during that with explosions yeah. going off and everything that was going on and to maintain that, that connectivity. Um, but before you went, was there any sort of like a brief from, from Google as far as like, Hey, here's some security things to be worried about. You're going to India, you're going to Kenya. Here's some things to do and not do. And okay. Or like a, you know, some sort of PowerPoint you have to go through before you travel or anything like that. Was there anything like, like that? Because when you talk about connecting with Melissa, like she yeah. sounded like she was with it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, she's amazing. I literally just like two weeks ago, sent her a signed copy of the book. She's, she's so amazing. Um, but, um, before, before I traveled to India and Kenya, um, I hadn't heard directly from Google security. So I was a little bit, I was really excited to go, but I was a little bit nervous. It was my first trip where I was the only um, employee from Google who would be traveling. And so I was just trying to figure out, you know, what are, when we travel to, to different places, what are the norms? Do I get a driver or do, you know, how, how right. do we work all this logistics out? Um, is there anything I need to be thinking about or concerned about? And so I actually uh, sent an email to the security team and asked, you know, this is my itinerary. Um, what do I need to know? Mm. And so, um, there's a, a side point in here that, that people love to talk about. Um, I actually had booked a different hotel. I had booked the Kempinski in Nairobi um, and uh, got word back from the security team that it, there's a latent but credible threat of terrorism in Nairobi, um, low threat to us, but just for good measure, uh, the Kempinski doesn't have enough setback from the road. So you might want to want to move your res reservation. And so I canceled it and booked the Deuce D2, which obviously is one of those moments that you think back on that just changed. I literally, you know, something that took me two minutes that I did online changed the entire trajectory of my life, which is, is kind of crazy. Wow. Um, were they both like from us other than the standoff from the street, were they both like you know, the five-star hotels, nice kind of comparable. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, and, and well-known and, and places that, um, very, 
you know, um, different celebrities or former presidents, things like uh-huh. that would stay. Um, so yeah. And, and honestly, not very far from one another either. Wow. So they're very, like very close together. So, uh, yeah, so that one was crazy, but they, they sent me a short briefing document, um, that basically said, um, the biggest threat to you is like road accidents or petty theft. Don't mm-hmm. walk alone at night. Don't, you know, flash your valuables, things like that. Um, and then they booked my driver. So that's how, you know, and my, my driver becomes such a central character yeah. in my experience. So not a character, he's a real person. Right, right. I know it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so talking to him the day is, is the day of when you're talking yeah. to him before you go and take your, your nap in the hotel room and then get, you know, woken up the way you do. But, um, so you're talking to him and is that the first time that you really thought, uh, more about terrorism, uh, and Al-Shabaab and where are we in the world and what are the, like, it seems like he, that, that became like a central point of your conversation with him and something that you, uh, that you were interested in talking to him about. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, I, I love to travel. Um, I'm obviously very chatty. I love to talk to people. Um, so it was not unusual for me to start asking, you know, whether it was a colleague who worked there or, or a driver um, to tell me about their experience living there. And uh, very quickly, we arrived at, at this topic of, of terrorism and, and, you know, Westgate Mall and the university and this history of, of Al-Shabaab attacks in, in the area. And I felt I felt so naive in that moment. It's hard for me to put it into words to think sitting so far outside of the security community, so far outside of the special operations community at that time and sitting in his car and thinking, I didn't, I didn't know there were terrorist attacks outside of the Middle East. To me, those were synonymous with, you know, Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq and and places like that. And I had no idea that that's something that not only happens here, it happens regularly and is a topic of conversation. Um, and you know, yeah, I, I thought back a little bit to, oh, okay, latent, but credible threat, but it seems, it seems a bit more acute than that. It seems to be very much a topic of conversation here. And I think I wanted to understand. I just felt, I felt so naive and I just asked, you know, I don't know anything about that. Will you explain it to me? How does that feel? What does it look like? What's the history? Um, how do you live under that kind of threat on a daily basis? When we know that, you know, as I know now that in each of these attacks, the majority of the death toll is Kenyans, right? So it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it was, it was humbling. It was, it was really moving to hear him say that and to talk about it so calmly and so casually. It was just crazy. And then, so you say goodbye to him and go up to your hotel room and going to take a, take a nap. Is that, was, was that after you kind of like, you just talk about this topic with him. Just talked about it. And then it. you yep. go in passive lobby, go on up and, yep. and then like going to take a couple hour nap or something. Yeah. Yeah. I was jet lagged and I just thought, um, I'll lie down until I meet up with, with the research team tonight. And, um, man, that's one of those moments that in retrospect, I think for a long time, the way I thought about that moment was how unlucky could I possibly be? I was supposed to be at the Kempinski. I was supposed to be at this meeting. You know, there were a million things that, that should have ended with me not sitting in the middle of a terrorist attack. And yet somehow against all odds, that's where I end up. And I think now when I look back on it, I think how lucky was that? 20 minutes later, arriving at that hotel, 20 minutes later, and I'd have been in that blast, you know, just having the thought, 
we had just gotten lunch. He had found a, a great place and we had stopped for lunch, which I really appreciated. But if, if he hadn't, you know, I would have, I would have been really hungry and I would have gone down to the cafe where the suicide bomber detonated. Wow. Right. There are a million ways that I should have died and I didn't. And so it's just, it's one of those crazy perspective shifts that happens over time. Um, but today I'm really thankful that somehow I was safely in my bed when, when the suicide bomber detonated his vest. It's, it's crazy to think about. Wow. You know, and, and exactly what you just said there, you meet at the end because people know the end because you're sitting here. Thank yeah. goodness. Um, but at the end here, you, you, there was another American in the hotel and I marked it, I marked it here. And, uh, cause it was, it was such a cool thing that you guys talk about when you meet up in the lobby. Um, but, uh, gosh, so I have too many notes. I have so many notes because it's, (laughs) it's so amazing. And oh, right here. Um, and so you meet, you meet Tim, uh, and, uh, you say, let's see, do you think we will always remember this as the best day of our lives or the worst? He didn't even hesitate. Both. He said calmly, self-assuredly, it was like, he was a terrorist attack, bro. (laughs) No nerves, no concerns. And he already knew exactly how we would process. Uh, I think back on that moment all the time is amazing to me just how right he was. But just like you said right there, I mean, that's incredible. And that's right afterward. Um, I mean, still in shock probably. And uh, I mean, what an incredible ordeal. But uh, yeah, all those things like minute here, minute there. It's it's incredible to think about. And it's, it's the same. I mean, you touched on it, right? Like to think that Christian Craighead ends up coming in and saving us that day by like crazy happenstance. It's just everything about it. it like what if he hadn't been there? Problem. What if he hadn't been, what was he having lunch or shopping at the time? Right? You know, yeah. if he hadn't, I mean, my truth, like truly, truly, my belief is that if he hadn't been there, we'd be dead. We'd, I would not be sitting here. I would not be having this conversation. That is truly my belief. And when you look back at Westgate mall, 17 hours would have been way better than what happened, right? Westgate mall lasted days. Yeah. And I could not have, I could not I can tell you, I wouldn't have survived days. I was, my sanity was, was shattering in that place. And, and it was really tough. And so it's everything about it. I, I say now people ask me, how would you describe it? And I say, reality is stranger than fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. that's the only way to put it right. If he's not there, if I don't arrive at the time I arrive, um, if I'm too hungry, if I step out of my room, when I hear the blast, um, you know, if I run and panic, if Melissa doesn't answer the phone and tell me what to do, um, it's, it's every single one of those. If one of my phones was dead, it's everything. So it's, it's crazy. Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan was born in Somalia and grew up in Africa and the Middle East before seeking asylum in the Netherlands, where she served as a member of the Dutch parliament. She was working with Theo van Gogh on a film titled Submission when he was murdered by an Islamic extremist with terrorist ties who took issue with the film's portrayal of Islam. Today, she is a women's rights activist, free speech advocate, and New York Times bestselling author of Infidel, The Caged Virgin, Nomad, Heretic, and Prey. Here's Ayan. What you had to do as a translator, once again, it's, uh, it's both eye-opening and it's amazing how you kept your faith in, in humanity hearing these stories. But there's one very good story in here that was uh, to, when you had your friend, I think it was your... Your roommate's boyfriend goes to Israel to study biology, and then he's gone. And while he's gone, his girlfriend falls in love with someone else, and he comes back, and he's very upset. But you were you were surprised because there wasn't an honor killing. Now, for 
ever the, oh, the rest of the West would be would be surprised if there was, but you were surprised that there yeah. was not. And that seemed like it was such a a shocking moment for the for the reader to be like, oh my goodness, yeah, she's shocked yeah. because there wasn't one. Um, so yeah, what, do you remember that? Was that was that a pivotal uh, moment in understanding Western culture? Absolutely. I mean, it, that was a pivotal moment and I like many other pivotal moments, but it was a moment, you know, again, an encounter with uh, this culture where everything seems to be going very well. And then, okay, my friend um, is unfaithful and uh, her parents were upset and his mother was upset. All our friends were upset, but no one actually said she should be killed or destroyed or no one talked about their honor at all. And of course, that to me was a huge shock. If I had done anything like that, I would be killed by my own father. And all the girls that when I was growing up in Somalia and Ethiopia and Kenya and, you know, all of my Muslim friends, even some of my classmates when we lived in Nairobi, they came from Yemen and they came from Pakistan and places like that. We, we all had that thing in common that if as a girl you trespassed sexually, even if there was just a rumor that you had done that, you would face very harsh consequences. You would be really beaten, locked up at home. The whole family honor would be brought down. And in some cases, if the fathers really wanted to adhere to the tribal code, Islamic code, they'd kill you. And so for me to actually live through this um, experience where um, the woman who committed the infidelity, who committed the, uh, the Dutch didn't even call yeah. it a crime. Right. Yeah. It, they didn't call it a crime. And ultimately, uh, you know, emotions were high. Everybody was, was very unhappy, except the couple who fell in love, maybe. <laughs> um, but the consequences were, you know, choosing friends, the friends who were on his side, uh, they were made to choose to cut ties with her and, and the new boyfriend. Uh, but nobody but was killed. Was no, <laughs> no one was killed. It wasn't a life and death matter. Yeah. And, uh, and again, the word honor wasn't mentioned, not even once. Uh, and what really was mentioned was uh, the boyfriend who was left, his feelings were hurt. His emotions were deeply, he was deeply, deeply hurt. And that it was going to take uh, some time for that to heal. That's really as far as it went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a little different. <laughs> yeah. And my friend's parents, they were upset. They, they made that very clear to her. Uh, but in the end, they sided with their daughter Yeah, and their new son-in-law. Right. And, that, and that's it. Yeah. The couple are still married happily and they have children. And it was probably the right decision at that point. It was made in the wrong way, but it it was the right decision. Yeah. And so it wasn't, there was no, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a life and death matter. And the way the relationship between men and women was, uh, uh, this young woman, I, I don't want to say her name, uh, Miriam. <laughs> but anyway, she was not seen as someone who was unequal. She had just, she had transgressed. She had done something wrong. But her feelings, um, her desires, uh, her career, everything was seen as completely equal. 
yeah. to that of uh, the boyfriend she left and the new boyfriend and her father and mother talked in equal terms about these things. That was for me the big shock. Amazing. And, and, and still, I mean, I don't want to say it's a shock, but still it's right. something that I think is amazing. Yep. It's and, a miracle in, in human history. And, uh, it, it, and before that, even when you were in, uh, I think you're in Ethiopia at the time and you start reading and you start reading first, there's Huckleberry Finn and Wuthering Heights. And then you get these, there's Daniel Steele and Robert Ludlum. And it just really shows those books in particular, those types of books in particular show the power of popular culture as it, you know, it, it heads yeah. out from the West and goes to these other cultures that aren't familiar with some of these themes. And from those kind of books, it was amazing to me as an author and someone who loves to read. And uh, my mom was a librarian when I was uh, growing up. So I grew up with books and a love of reading. But what those books did for you, as you describe in the book, is, wow, men and women are equal. Women have the same choices as men. And uh, so that was incredible for, for me to read yeah. uh, just through the lens of, of popular culture. And I'll say it is popular culture, and then there is American popular culture, which really reaches out to every corner of the world. And I think that is when we have our adversaries in America, whether they be the Chinese or back in the day in my time, it was the Soviet Union um, or, or Russia now, or you know uh, the Islamists in Muslim majority countries. I think what infuriates them the most is this culture that's produced in America that then permeates through their own cultures and starts to displace things. You know, I, I read those books, the Nancy Drews, and I started to imagine myself a Nancy Drew and imagine that there was a world where as a young girl, I could do all of those things, solve mysteries, uh, have friends, male friends as my equals, uh, go to school, finish school, uh, you know, have be the master of my own mistress, of my own destiny. That is American culture writ large. And we were listening to music by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And my mother and all the other relatives uh, who are Muslim were really upset by that, worried by that, because that is so against our own culture. And I think if Americans simply understood that you could attract, I mean, you don't even have to, to try. <laughs> People are attracted to that culture. Um, but I think if we, if we were to market the idea of America, it would catch on. It would catch on way better than the ideology of the Islamists, well, the Soviet Union's done for, but the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. This combination of political freedom, economic freedom, and cultural freedom it's, it's a very, very powerful cocktail. And I think that Americans don't understand it because they live it. Yep. Yeah. We don't appreciate it. Uh, if you grew up in it and it's your normal, uh, only when you go outside the United States, that's why travel is, is so, so important to be able to look back at your country through the lens of other people, other cultures, uh, to really come home and then appreciate what you have and then fight to keep it fight to keep those freedoms that are constantly yeah. under attack. Gavi Friedson. Gavi is a former Israeli infantry soldier and medic. He now serves as the Director of International Emergency Management and Global Ambassador for United Hatzalah of Israel. You can find out more about them at israelrescue.org. Here's Gavi. For us, as you know, 
being on those, it, it does add to the enthusiasm, to the, you know, if you ever for, for a split second ask or question yourself, why are you here? What are you doing? All you got to do like is my just- family's 30 minutes that way. Just turn your head. Turn yeah. your head and you're looking at the lights of the country you're protecting. Yeah. Um, and, and I can't even imagine in, in the situations you've been where you're so far away from America of where even if those questions did come up. Like, what am I doing here? Right. right. <laughs> After 20 years. You uh, know, and it's just like you turn your head around and you're looking, wow, like I'm literally protecting yeah. this. And it makes sense. And that's exactly. And, and then uh, I think it will always, you know, be that case. Yeah. In Israel. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean. And what, when, so you did your, you're now you're in the army. And in the now Army, you're a medic, you graduate boot camp, and then you get assigned to to a unit that then forward deploys 30 minutes to a to like So you're protected. It depends. Every few months they switch off depending what region different infantry units do different things. So okay. you could be up north on the Lebanon Syrian border, you could be down south near Elat, which is near Egypt, mm -hmm. you can be deployed in the West Bank, you can have different refugee camps, you could be doing house arrests at night and helping the Mossad or Shabak doing intel or and getting, you know, different there's now there's so much different sciences to everything because different ah. refugee camps mean different things. So some ah. refugee camps are known to really breed the suicide bomber and they kind of really just teach them wow. um, more about brain. I wouldn't say teach, I say brainwashing them mm -hmm. to become suicide bombers and die for Shaheed and die. And that's the whole point. And then you have another uh, camp that would be all about, you know, teaching them to be um, suicide uh, technician. Uh, it's not suicide technicians, uh, bomb technicians where they would explosives and if they yeah. know how to make the bomb, but if, you know, a person then comes from the the brainwashed camp who's yeah. ready to die and be a suicide bomber and meets up with the person who invented the bomb and actually has the device. You never want those two people to connect because yeah. that's just a bad recipe. Um, so there's a lot of the times where a lot of these units would go in and do house arrests and try to just get more intel. And everyone's got a cousin of a cousin who knows something. And that's where the security and the intelligence is just incredible in Israel yeah. I and mean, what they're able to track down and, you know, and find out ahead of the time is, is just amazing. Yeah, so I got to incorporate it into these next couple of novels. That's why we got to we got to go together and do some on the, uh, on, wait, on the ground yeah, research. I can't wait to show you around. I'm there. fired up, man. I'm fired up. Yeah. Uh, and so you did, how many years did you spend then? So I was the three years in the military, okay. but even through my military service, I still volunteered every time I came home. My parents thought I were crazy. You know, when a soldier comes home, he wants to just sleep yeah. and eat. And when I had to come home, the first thing I wanted to do was go back to volunteering and back to just being a medic because I loved it. I, okay. I, just, I really, really did. Um, and so even throughout my medical service, so I started volunteering on the back of the ambulance, mm -hmm. but what was great, there's an organization in Israel, which is what I work for now called United Hatzalah. And Hatzalah is the Hebrew word for rescue. Okay. And they came up with the concept of understanding that ambulances, um, are a great concept for transportation, mm -hmm. but they're not great for actually saving people's lives. You just arrive too late. Yeah. I mean, you look at the traffic mm -hmm. in a lot of these countries and um, it could take anywhere between 15 and 20 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. Uh -huh. So our CEO, our founder of the company, realized that he was a, a volunteer in the back of the ambulance. It was very frustrating to get an emergency, get a call, get an ambulance, respond to the call, and just get there too late. You're stuck in traffic. You're stuck in traffic. And he realized if you're able to deliver pizza, you know, on a motorcycle, why can't we do that? Mm -hmm. Why can't we? And that's what, exactly what he did is kind nice. of came up with the concept of a motorcycle ambulance. Yeah. And I became one of the youngest uh, ambucycles, what we call an ambucycle, nice. uh, the youngest motorcycle ambulance medics. And I started responding to thousands of emergencies on the back of this because we're able to maneuver and swerve in between traffic. And, and you already out? You're like forward deployed on this anyway, just doing things? This or is are your, you like yeah. 
<laughs> everywhere with you. Yeah. This this is our mode of transportation. This, I go to the supermarket. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the supermarket. So you're there. So you're not like, oh, hold on, I have to run back to my base or the you know the firehouse or the hospital or you know whatever it is, clinic, and get my get in the ambulance or get on this thing. You're already there. I'm already it, there. Explosion happens over here. You're three blocks away. Exactly. You're getting a pizza over here. All of a sudden, you're there in 30 seconds. And that's why our first response uh, model has is just literally breaking barriers and, and so innovative and really is just a game changer because we now have a network of 6,000 plus volunteers, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, all walks of life who are trained medics, paramedics, doctors, nurses, whoever wants to volunteer can. And we take the entire map of Israel from north to south and we create a system in which we have signed medics to each neighborhood, each region. It's almost like Uber, mm-hmm. but we're the Uber of EMS. Amazing. And the second you call 911, our system finds the five closest medics, just like it would find the five closest vehicles. We're finding the five closest medics. You're still getting that call to 911, uh-huh. but you're going to have a paramedic or an EMT arrive at the scene within 90 seconds. So they're already they're getting an alert on their phone? Alert on their what? phone, and our response time is 90 seconds, and in, in most cases, three minutes or less. So it's the fastest response time in the world. We're responding and we don't charge for any of our services. It's completely free. Um, And we're able to really get there. So by the time the ambulance arrives 12, 15 minutes later, the patient's already stabilized. So it's it's brilliant. That's amazing. I mean, and what's so I've seen pictures of these things, of course. Yeah. Uh, where can people go to look at find that picture? Is there like there's Instagram, the website? Yeah. And what's, what's it called? It's IsraelRescue.org. IsraelRescue.org. Yeah. And like right on the homepage, I think there's this one of these, these motorcycle moped thing yep. on there. It looks awesome. Uh, it's like they took an ambulance and shrunk it. You yeah. Know? It's really cool. So what's on that thing? Is the uh, the AED thing on AED, there? AED. Yeah. So we've got the defibrillator. Um, my favorite is a birth kit because one of my first, I've actually delivered nine babies. Whoa. And one of the first was my math teacher. That's right. Uh, that. Yeah. Crazy. So that's insane. Of all the terrorist attacks, my nightmares come from her. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. But uh, uh, everything except the stretcher. So from mm-hmm. oxygen tanks, um, you know, glucose meters, uh, BLS for basic life support, ALS mm-hmm. for advanced life support. So if we have a paramedic, we'll modify his ambu cycle and make sure that he has everything that we need. So you can have some meds on there. Um, meds as well, yeah. So basically, it's everything but the stretcher. And again, we don't specialize in transportation. I mean, we do. We do have several ambulances. And we're actually now, COVID um, has actually mm-hmm. turned our entire organization to frontline essential workers. We actually have 6,000 medics now helping in Israel wow. with the vaccinations and transporting elderly people uh, to and from these different quarantine hotels with the government that needed extra assistance. Um, and Israel happens to be the leading country in the world with the vaccinations, with 75% already vaccinated. Oh, wow. That's so, incredible. but all of our volunteers have to respond to each call also and wearing the PPE and making sure that they're fully uh-huh. protected and taking into account that any person could potentially have COVID. So it's also, you know, this entire pandemic has brought a lot of extra strains mm-hmm. just from an everyday, any, I guess any healthcare organization. I mean, you can go to any hospital and see what they're going yeah. through right now uh, with just in the lines of COVID. But yeah, right. in general, our response time is, you know, three minutes or less and you have a medic on scene. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And then in the business model is fundraising so yeah. that it's not, uh, you're not paying for this. We don't this make service. any money from the government. Um, and I mean, hopefully that'll change, but of course at the moment it's all fully fundraising. It's just really just people who want to make a difference and who want to help out. And, and it really is saving lives. I mean, we've treated almost 3 million people since that's we've started. Cool. Um, is there, are you bringing that model here to the, to the U S then? We're trying, we're trying. We started in Jersey city. And there's other cities. Here's a little bit more complicated because of the unions. Um, uh-huh. And it's so interesting. Every time I meet with them, you know, I've, I've 
gone to several firehouses where I've always asked the firefighters, I'm like, if you know, if you're off duty right now and you're at home and your neighbor was choking, would you, would you get off the couch and go help her? And if you knew you were the difference between 15 minutes of your local ambulance arriving, or if you could start the CPR and the chest compressions, I've yet to meet one firefighter that said, no, I wouldn't get off the couch to assist yet. When you speak to a lot of these people in the unions, oh no, we don't want volunteers because they they look at like volunteers are taking their money. Interesting. And we're not like in our organization at least we don't take like ambulance service will still charge the patient or the healthcare provider like they or the insurance company they'll yeah. make their money. It's we're strictly about just filling that gap until the ambulance arrives. Yeah. So that we can make the difference, we can right. start the chest compression, we can stop the bleeding, we can deliver the baby, we could do whatever it is that we need to do. Yeah. Because a 15 minutes is just too, 15 minutes too long. Like in most cases, you wait until 15 minutes for persons that are having a heart attack and you start CPR after that. What's the point? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're just trying to get there in those first three minutes. That's really just our, our, our model is to be first, fast, and efficient. Amazing. And so in the United States, it's just in its base, but just in Jersey City? So in Jersey kind of- City. And we have others. So, you know, we had uh, last year, we had uh, a team of medics come from Australia to train with us oh, nice. on mass casualties. Yeah. We've had different, um, but deputy prime minister to India came and stopped and he, he loved the idea. Like yeah. a place like India, India with mopeds perfect, and, yeah. and, and having, you know, uh, motorcycles, first responders, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So they love the idea. So there's a lot of other countries internationally that are really trying to adopt this model. Yeah. And we're happy to share with everybody. Um, yeah, our founder always jokes like his, you know, technically he created Uber, you know, he created, yeah. um, and he could have been a billionaire somewhere, <laughs> but his focus is always, ha- always has and always will be just saving lives. Yeah. Amazing. Have you, did you see in Israel where medical personnel were actively targeted by uh, any terrorist organizations over there just because you could respond so all quickly? All the time. All the time. There's, there, and I think that is one of, the, um, one of the scariest things with being a medic is when you go to a terrorist attack is you get there so fast that sometimes, especially at least with our organization, we're there so fast, we're there before the police even arrive. Mm-hmm. Now in Israel, a lot of our medics carry guns. Um, I like it. And yeah, I mean, I approve. We're we're all we're all carrying, um, and they've made it easier because of how fast we get there. That we're actually essential, and they've made it a little bit easier with the whole bureaucracy of who can have a gun, and who can't, huh. knowing and, and understanding that like we are first responders and we're there within ninety seconds. And sometimes when we're there, there's still live fire going on or an active shooting situation. So. And again, our, our medics come as medics. They're not there to be police. They're not mm-hmm. there to stop the threat, obviously, unless it's, you know, there's no choice and you're able to make the difference. Right. They will. But, um, yeah, I mean, our, our medics have gone several times where they get to a scene and a few minutes later, there'll be another device that is found. I've been to a terrorist attack where while we're in the middle of evacuating uh, many injured the police or the bomb squad will start yelling, clear the scene, clear the scene. I don't even care if there's any patients left in the field. Get off, you know, get out, get out, get out. Mm-hmm. There was another terrorist attack I went to in Jerusalem after uh, a person, he drove through an intersection with several soldiers walking through the intersection near the old city. I was one of the first people to see it. I even called it in on my radio. And there was a woman, as they shot, one of the soldiers, one of the officers actually ended up shooting him. Shot the shot the terrorist. He then lost control and drove and pinned a soldier against the wall. Oh. So I was actually helping with the evacuation and treating of of the woman who was pinned against the wall. And as I'm standing on the hood, trying to actually treat this lady, um, 
the bomb squads were already coming in and trying to figure it out. And they and, he, and he, we could tell he, I mean, he was dead, but they didn't know for sure. Then they thought their dog sniffed something that, that there mm-hmm. must've been like either a booby trap or he was wearing a vest or something. Maybe there's an explosive thing under the hood. Mm-hmm. And they were like screaming at us, leave the woman and everybody leave, everybody leave, get off the hood. The car could explode. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of put in this dilemma. Like, okay, yeah. I have a woman here that's bleeding out. She's pinned against the wall. Um, do you get off the hood and just let the pull it? But that could take another 25, 30 minutes if that, that's the case and she'll definitely die. Yeah. Um, or you just, and in your mind, you're just like, I just need one more minute. Just yeah. one more minute. You know, right. just one more minute. Even though that minute feels like eternity. Yeah. Uh, one more minute. And um, we did, we didn't leave her. And we just, I mean, afterwards, of course, there was a debriefing and they were very upset. And the, po- <laughs> the police, like, how can you do yeah. You weren't listening and, you know, to the rules. And right. uh, when the police say get off, you get off. Your safety, and it's true, your safety is, that's the number one thing you learn in any, whether mm. it's, you know, med school or even just becoming a medic. Yeah. Don't even become in the another military. casualty. Don't become another casualty. Don't be, exactly. Don't make things worse. And yeah. safety, safety is always the most important rule. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, when you're in it, yeah, yeah. as you know, the playbook right. kind of goes to hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, most every time. Uh, yeah. And the adrenaline and and what's right and wrong. It's just, it's easy to, to train as much as you can. But I think mm. when you're actually in a specific situation, um, you, yeah. just, you, just, you just act. You just yeah. do what you got to do. Marcus Torgerson. Marcus is a certified level three expert instructor in Krav Maga. For years, he traveled the world teaching self-defense as the only non-Israeli on the International Krav Maga Federation Instructors Team. He is currently working on a memoir titled Nightmare for Bad Guys. Here's Marcus. I grew up in a in an alcoholic home. So, you know, my mother, as much as there's negative, the positive is always how I look back at her integrity and on still still raising me, even though there was a lot of background that was negative. You know, she didn't really, you know, didn't really want me. And yet she still fed me, still took me to Kung Fu, right? I didn't get to the class by myself, yeah. right? So as, as I've grown older, my appreciation for her as a parent has really shined through because, right. you know, it doesn't, even though words hurt and you can say things that hurt somebody's feelings, actions still in time show perhaps their true feelings, you know, even my mom was not happy with her life. She still went and did things for me that, that she didn't have to do. And, you know, we were on welfare in the beginning. She worked her way off of welfare. Now she was a, she was an alcoholic. I mean, full blown alcoholic yet still was able to hold down a job five days a week, 40 hours, a you know, 40 hours a week and drink on the weekends. And my childhood up until, you know, even at 10, it was really not good because I'd had some negativity with, with being um, sexually assaulted as a child. And there's all these things going on, yet martial arts was always that, that one thing that for a while was always going to be good for me. And I sit back and I look back at my childhood from, you know, my dad died when I was two or under two, I think. So I didn't have any male, any male role models whatsoever. Um, I grew up with women, my mother, my aunt, my, my grandmother, all alcoholics, all like racist, which is funny because my first, you know, all my girlfriends have been either Asian, uh, black or anything but white, except for my second wife. Um, so, you know, there's turmoil in my house and all these things, but I still have good memories now when I think back about how amazing it must, how hard it must have been for her to be a mother when she didn't want to be, have to work 
and be an alcoholic. I mean, the stress on that could, I can't even put it into words, what she must've been going through. Yeah. Oh. So that's my, that's my childhood. Oh, geez. Did you More block out the sexual assault thing for a while? Or how does that? No, no, no. I, um, well, I didn't really get a choice. When that first sexual assault happened, I ended up telling my mom a few days later. And now again, to say something about my mom, to her tenacity, that word tenacity, she went over next door with an ax in her hand or a bat, something violent, and he'd already moved. But she was ready to go, like, go to toe-to-toe with this guy. Um, so, so she, her, again, her actions were different than what she, the, 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 the very cruel things she would say. Um, and then, you know, since we're on topic of sexual assault, when I was 16, my martial arts instructor also molested me. So the amazing part about all of that is there's, there is a thought process of, oh, woe is me. But I look at it now at my age of 50 something and the conversations I've had with men and women, if I hadn't had those things happen, well, then I wouldn't be able to have the conversations I do that really have changed a lot of people's perspectives of the, it's not really about a victim mentality, but more just embracing the positive out of it and looking that the negative will benefit someone some way, somehow. And it's just how you, it's how you, how you flip the script. You know, you're not, you're not special. You've been given a situation or a scenario. What is the lesson that has to be learned from it? And that's my biggest takeaway from my childhood has been what's been the takeaway. I've had all these scenarios that, that a lot of people have been like, Oh, Marcus, I'm sorry for you. Well, I'm not sorry. Because I'm say I've saved a lot of lives. I know that for a fact, not with arrogance, from people who are going to kill themselves because they think that they're alone in their internal struggle in their head about how bad their life is. And when all of a sudden they see they're not alone and that you can survive and thrive and and do something good with it, well then there's that little glimmer of hope. And with a little bit of hope, miracles can happen. Man, when was the when was the there first time you decided like you were like, oh man, I can I can help somebody with my experience and uh i can i can yeah be a be an influence on them that that uh that helps them out of a a dark place or or helps them move forward was it like through martial arts and through training or uh or or not no believe it or not are you familiar with the name david rutherford oh yeah of course okay all right so uh 15 years ago or so when he came out with his book he was really big online and frog logic just Frog logic. Yeah. So I bought his book and I started reading it and it became my Bible. And when people sit there and say, oh, Marcus, you know, the, the way that you impact people and your positivity, I have to shed light on him because his book and his ways, frog logic, altered my verbiage on what I would say. I didn't know what a swim buddy was. I didn't know what cold, wet and sandy was. I didn't know what a negative insurgency was. And because of that verbiage, altering how I view things and how I speak, it manifested in ways that I can't even put into perspective. So from changing my verbiage and changing how I looked at things, and then all of a sudden coming to terms with, Hey man, you know, you, 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 this happened for a reason. Now my sobriety has really opened up a lot of that. Like being sober really kind of goes, wait a second. Okay. I got one more thing to add to the, the, to the chalkboard on what I can talk to somebody about. Mm. And when they're being ambushed by a negative insurgency, David Rutherford, frog logic, uh, 
I have the, I have the, I have the permission in my brain of saying, okay, well, what can I do? How can I, how can I relate and resonate with this individual in a way that they'll hear what I have to say? Because at the end of the day, the, the biggest problem that the enemy gives us is that we're alone. You're alone. Nobody loves you. You're, you, this is your path for life. And until somebody comes by and gives you a verbal slap in the face and says, hey, man, you're not alone. And you're not, you're not special in the way of you're better than anybody else. and You're not worse than anybody else. You and I are the exact same. We bleed, crap, and cry the exact same way. So let me tell you what I've done. Or more importantly, let me hear what, what you're going through, yeah. right? God gave me two ears and one mouth. So I need to listen, give a little bit of feedback, and again, shine a little bright light of hope, which is where David Rutherford really did. He came in and, and just his, the way that he was, you, you know what he's like. Yeah, he's yeah. Like, we knew oh, each other like, back in the day uh, in the SEAL teams. And then uh, I remember when he got out and someone told me, he's like, he's doing... He's doing a uh, uh, speaking. He's a motivational speaker. I was like, "What?" Yeah. Like it was before it was yeah. a thing. Before any, in, you know, social media and all that stuff. Like he was That's early. Right. Yeah. He was early in on that. Oh yeah. And he was yeah, and, he really was. passionate about it. Genuinely passionate oh. about it. I remember from those early days. Yeah. And he's still still doing it today. Yeah, he really is. And and now I'm I'm a little sad because he got he was one of the first people to really get chokeholded by social media, which is ironic because he's the most not there's no reason to, to stifle David Rutherford. I mean, everything he says. Oh, is, really? What do you mean? I don't, what do you mean? I don't know. Well, he, the Instagram, uh, Instagram and Facebook just started choking his, his feeds and doing what they're doing to oh. us now. But back then it was just basically on. like skip it. And he's still out talking, still doing stuff. And one day I'm going to meet that guy face to face. And, nice. and I'm telling you right now that, a lot of people have like heroes they want to meet. David Rutherford's one of those guys I just oh, want to hug awesome. and be like, dude, you have no idea the, the impact. that." Oh. And that's, that's what I think is important with people who are on a social media or a, at a level of, 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 of touching social media wise. Mm-hmm. The impact, the question is, are you doing stuff that makes people's lives better or worse? And it's that simple. And if you think you're doing better than brothers and sisters, yeah, do better. If you think you're doing it worse because they're out you're putting out nothing but vile grossness then you know what you got to answer for yourself but yeah I mean, that's why it's so important tool. who you uh who you follow is important because it's an input yep, and it you is get to choose i mean that's uh you know not that's always i mean sometimes part. those algorithms will throw things up i'm noticing that more and more i'm like i don't follow this person but it apparently yeah. knows me really well because it's like throwing some hair 80s band up there or whatever or something like that you know uh like how does it even know i've never even paused on anything like that like they know um but uh but yeah it's so it's so it, it is so important especially for kids you know who you choose to follow yes. even if you think something is quote unquote funny uh but it's negative and it is just yep. it's not adding value to your life or anybody else's no. uh but you're looking at the no. numbers and maybe and you're seeing this person yep. have a lot of quote unquote followers or whatever, yep. you know, the fame yep. and the, the, the Instagram right. space, the social media space. And uh, I don't know if it's a curiosity or a morbid, <laughs> morbid curiosity, but, uh, so who you follow is important. And then uh, as a person, you know, what, it, Hey, it, it is important how you, how you carry yourself. But the other side oh, of that is yeah. that authenticity piece. So the people that are out there yeah. being negative and vile, not adding value to people's lives, regardless of the number of followers, where, whether it's yeah. one or 50 million, um, yeah. like, uh, it, it, they're, they get to choose and, uh, yeah. and you in turn get to choose. Yeah. So that and authenticity it's not piece is, uh, yeah, that authenticity piece Unfollow, is out there. Move. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. You know, it's not, it don't need to, you don't need to announce anything. Just, Oh, yeah. I don't like where this is going. See you later. Bye. Yep. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, yeah. it is important, especially for kids, but even for adults, oh. uh, even, even yeah. for adults, I mean, cause you're getting that input and that's one. Okay. You got one negative input, but you've chosen to follow someone who is right. constantly yeah. negative or harping or, yeah. or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. but not adding value yep. to your life. But if you put it in those terms, like, is this person adding value to my life? Uh, yeah. and yeah. maybe if you just want to sit there and get negative inputs and that you think that is value, yeah, which, I guess. which cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, fine. there's a make, lot of people that do make Misery choices, company, but how's right? that going to impact you? And then what, like, like I see comments, it's fascinating to me. Um, and I use it for character development in, uh, in the novels because it's one it's therapeutic and you know, Hey, people are, yeah. uh, you're giving me some, some, uh, some negative comments and like thinking, why would you take the limited time you have on this earth to spend five seconds to spend five minutes, uh, writing something horrible, unnecessary, um, to ruin someone else's day. You've taken time out of your day to try to ruin someone else's. That's what you decided to do with your limited time on earth. I mean, it's, it's wild. Take on the holiday season with the help of Navy federal credit union. When you use the Navy Federal Cash Rewards Card, you can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases. You can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. And using the Navy Federal mobile app makes redeeming easier than ever. Enjoy the rewards of cash back without any annual fee, balance transfer, or foreign transaction fees. There are no limitations on rewards, and they never expire while your account is open. Learn how you can get cheer to last all year with the cash rewards card at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, rates are variable and range between 12.65% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Tony Blauer. Tony is a martial artist and combatives expert, founder of Blauer Training Systems, Blauer Tactical Systems, creator of high gear scenario training equipment, and the developer of the Spear System of Self-Defense. He also hosts the No Fear Podcast. Here's Tony. When I started going to Taekwondo, I was like, this is going to change my life. This, this is going to give me the personal power and the confidence that, that I've been lacking for, you know, the last 15 years or 13 years. Yeah. And, um, so I started going and I was a fanatic, like I literally, I trained every single day, uh, six days a week, um, trained at home, turned my basement into a Bruce Lee museum and, and bags and everything. And, uh, just worked out all the time. Uh, literally, I wouldn't get out of bed. I had a, like a Mackie warrior, you know, that striking pad. Oh Yeah under my bed. I'd wake up in the morning, the alarm would go off for school. I'd reach under the bed, pull it under the bed and just start nailing it. That is so funny. I've never heard someone say that before, except me. I did the same thing. I talked about it with, uh, Evan Hafer on a podcast four years ago or something like that. Um, Tom Davin, who's the the co-CEO out there, he brings it up all the time. He just can't get enough of it, but I did the same thing. Uh, I put one of those pads next to my bed. And when the alarm went off, I trained myself to wake up 
and hit yeah. it immediately. Yeah. So for years, I mean, I think only recently I started not waking up all the time uh-huh. doing that, right. but from doing that at such a formative, during a formative period in my life like that, alarm up, I'm awake immediately and bam, I'm hit, I'm hitting that pad right there. It's not, well, it's not a pad. If people have hit them before, you know, it's, it's not really a pad, this canvas covered, you know, thing. Um, sure. And uh, and I just trained myself to do that. And yeah. I did that for years. And so I, I would always wake up, no matter where I was, alarm went off, boom, I'm like this. Like, yeah, fist is here, yeah, elbow in right next to right next to my head I'm here, ready, ready, to, ready to strike, you're ready to go. But, oh, yeah. uh, but same thing, I never heard anybody else that uh, did that. Kindred uh, spirits. I mean, I love Isn't it. Isn't that funny? There we go. We should end the show right there. That was <laughs> uh, the, yeah. So, so I would, I would wail on that. And then when I was finished, you know, and I'd hear my sister in the other room going, stop that. Cause the floor would be rattling and whatever. And then I'd get her to bed and I'd literally before I would go even take a, take a, a, a leak, I banged out, you know, 75 push-ups. I do handstand push-ups. And on the way, and on the way to the bathroom, you know, I'd be there going, ah, you know, like throwing kicks, <laughs> walk, walk. Just a complete fanatic, just a complete fanatic. And um loved it, loved it. Got into an altercation when I was 15 at school. Now, my martial art instructor, this guy Alex, who I revered would tell all the students, if I catch you abusing your skill, abusing your martial arts in any way, you're out of the school. This is only for self-defense. He was super clear. And we were all like scared of him and revered him. And uh, one day I'm in school uh, and uh, teacher goes out of the room. And of course, you know, 15 year olds, you know, the girls, the guys and everything. And the, the place is teachers out of the room, she's down the hall. You know, like people going, you know, the, the spitballs coming out and throwing shit and chaos. And these two guys start harassing this guy, Lance. Lance was the school nerd who had the, you know, the uh, the white tape on the big thick glasses. Mm-hmm. He was like literally that guy. He literally he invented that white tape right in the the, the nerd tape. Um, just kidding. I don't know, but he had it. But he wasn't just a nerd that got picked on. He was a shit disturber and instigator. I mean, it was reciprocal, right? Mm-hmm. And so these guys are going and they're harassing each other. We're all like 15 year old assholes. And I'm standing there and one of them sneaks up behind him and, uh, you know, goes down on the floor to set up the push so that he'd fall over. And uh, they do that. He falls and he falls into the teacher's like a stationary supply closet, falls in, kind of bangs his head. He's okay. But he looks up right away and I'm laughing because everyone's laughing and he thinks it was me that uh that tripped him so he goes you fucker and you can see him like getting up he's like, you motherfucker and I can, I can tell he's going after me well what do you do you're 15 it looks like somebody's about to sprint at you i'm like dude no 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 and i start i start moving and he chases me and i realize you know like that's just this behavioral instinct he starts chasing me to the back of the room now i've been doing taekwondo now at this point for two and a half years every fucking day fascinated with Bruce Lee, bagging my my, my uh, uh, um, basement, wailing on it, doing it through osmosis, intuiting Jeet Kune Do, but focused on the Taekwondo. And um, he comes running at me. And I'm like, because I, I didn't do anything, I was just laughing. Like I, I wasn't in fight mode. I was like, what the fuck's going on? And I put my hands up like this, mm-hmm. fingers played outside 90. And I go, Lance, Lance the fuck calm down. And he's like, and carotid coming out of it. He's embarrassed and he's angry. 
And he goes, he goes, you fucker, let's go, let's go. I go, dude, like, and all I can hear in my head is Alex going, you're out of the school if you abuse your skill. Like I could just hear the warning. And so, but there's a part of me that recognizes there's danger close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this guy wants to fight and he thinks it's me and my hands are up, but I'm not in my Taekwondo stance here. There you go. I get to a wall. Yeah. My hands are up and there's a part of me going, he's too close to kick. He's too close to kick. He's too close to kick. And this is a deep talk. I don't know if we'll get into it, but on this call or another call about neuroscience, myelinization of neurons and how neural patterns, not muscle memory, because there really isn't true muscle memory. Memory doesn't have the capacity to have a memory, but how neural patterns can influence your functioning situational awareness. And this is huge. If you're in a gunfight, a knife fight, a car accident, that, that a, uh, a neural pattern that likes to move a certain way can hijack your attention. And it looks to make that the solution as opposed to a, 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 a more uh, adaptive or efficient solution. Yeah. Anyways. So I'm here like this going, dude, take it easy. What do you, what, what, like, it wasn't me. And he's going, let's go, let's fight. And I'm going, Lance, calm down. Right. Well, you know, and he goes, come on. And he's getting more angry, Jack. And he's getting more angry, Jack. And I suddenly I realized this guy's going to fucking swing. You could just, my intuition was going, here we go. My hands came up a little bit higher and I'm thinking he's too close to kick. He's too close to kick. He's too far to knee. It was like this dead space here where I didn't know anything. And then all of a sudden he goes, come on, you fucking pussy. I'll let you have the first. And he's about to say punch. And I'm standing there like this. And as he says, punch, I hit him on the, the letter U in the word punch, mm-hmm. but I wasn't a good striker. It was like a shitty, uh, like a, like a panic jab. Cause you've been doing a lot of this at Taekwondo probably. Yeah, just, just straight, like just reverse punches yeah. and back fists. But I was, but I never practiced. So now like my students now and my team were taught, how do you explode dynamically from nonviolent postures? So that if I'm talking to somebody like this, mm. how does that become a strong punch or from here moving? And how does that become the palm strike or the movement? Because we don't have the luxury. This is a neural pattern thing that, that a lot of people go, I don't want any trouble. And then they go, come on, man, I don't want to fight. And they betray the element of surprise by subtly uh. getting ready and adopting in body uh. language, percent of communication. Anyways, um, I throw the shitty punch, but as I hit Lance, his overhand has already started. So he was about to sucker punch me. And it was just this perfect timing. And what happens is the punch comes, it hits him. And as my hands coming back, I see this flurry of movement and my flinch response kicks in and I go, fuck, and my hands come up and his forearm hits my forearm. And I told you earlier, I'd wrestled a lot. So I'm like, shit. And my hands come up in what's now we call like the biological airbag. The spear starts up and he lands up in like literally like a bottom here. Like I'm like, fuck. And I'm done this here. And I grab his head right there, Jack. I'm like this. And I pull him in. I just hip throw him on the ground because it just segued perfectly into a throw because of the angle and the way we fell. But it was the flinch that stopped me from getting sucker punch. He falls to the ground and he's on. I'm still holding him. I grab his jaw and his hair and I freak and I whip him into a desk, stunning him like he's on the ground. And then when he's on the ground, I finally hit this like fighting stance and I scream at 15. Like, I don't even know. This is like 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 10 years of fear coming out of me. I went, if you get up, I'll fucking kill you. 
right? And he's just sitting there like this, and everyone in the class is like, holy shit. Uh, and um, and I, I make the joke after, I go, the only time I was in a fighting stance was when the fight was over. Yeah. <laughs> when I was right. down there, like, looking like Elvis at the end of a, <laughs> a, a song, right? Doing, you know. uh-huh. But it was a fascinating event, because what I did afterwards, and this is neat, I immediately um, said, oh, my God, I got to learn how to box, because my striking was horrible. Mm-hmm. What was fascinating, and again, like a decade later, when I, I remembered this fight again, I went, I used a nonviolent posture. My body's physiology bypassed my executive function and saved me because in action versus reaction, if, if, you know, if you've got your hand on a gun and I got a gun out, you need to hope for a malfunction, right? Or I'm a shitty shot because action's faster than reaction. So he was starting his punch by fluke. I threw mine early. Uh, but had I tried to do wax on wax off and of course karate kid hadn't released yet, but had I tried to do something like that, I, I'd have been late. And what I discovered, I didn't realize that then was that my body startle flinch is what saved my face. And then that became the bridge to another skill set. That's one of the lines we say, you know, in the system, all fights are dangerous, but the most dangerous fight is an ambush. The ambush hijacks executive function, bypasses cognition, your reactive brain kicks in, we push away danger, we cover the head. If you weaponize the start of flinch, it's like having like the the power of an airbag in a car. We all have that hardwired. And what's cool about our airbag is for the car airbag to save you from impact, you need to be hit. But if I if you and I have an argument and I stand up quick, your hands would come off the desk. So the power of a biological airbag is it starts to lock and load and get ready to deploy in anticipation of impact. Mm. That's genius, right? So I figured, so in the eighties, I started, I was doing these experiments and I was like, holy shit. And that became, you know, one of my missions is how do you weaponize the start of Lynch? And how do we, you know, we, you talked about earlier that, uh, uh, I forget, how, I forget how you phrased it, but just a short slice of history where we haven't had to worry about predators and stuff like that. Like you know, we, we've thought that we haven't had to, you do right, <laughs> but right. where you could, yeah, uh, essentially well, stumble through life and maybe make it. Exactly. Well, that domestication, which is only really yeah, the last yeah. hundred years or so, yeah. because before that you needed to know, okay, these mushrooms get me high. These kill me. Uh, I'm just going to starve. I got to learn how to, uh, you know, uh, trap a rabbit and eat it and, and, and skin it. Right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that long ago that people understood how to hunt and gather and, and stuff like that. And so we've all been domesticated. Most of us have been domesticated and we, 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 we allow the government to go, is it okay to eat? Is it okay to, to, to do this now? What should we do next? Yep. But, but like tying this back, like into the story is that part of our survival system. I realized that when you train any type of martial art, you unintentionally bypass exploring that. Mm. And that became my martial art journey. Uh, and again, like that was when I was 15. I didn't figure that out. That fight happened when I was 15. I didn't figure this out. I didn't, I didn't leave there going, oh my God, start a flinch conversion. Uh, <laughs> what an acronym. Yeah. That in, in, in fact, um, I went into boxing. And it was this interesting thing that for all of your listeners that are into martial arts and combatives and defensive tactics, I thought that if I focused on tool development, it would make me safer, more confident, and it didn't. I realized that that uh, the mind navigates the body, and if you can't manage your fear, you're gonna have trouble managing the fight. 
If you love America, then Black Rifle Coffee Company has you covered for the holidays. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, check out all the gear, merch, apparel, and coffee roasting equipment. Once again, blackriflecoffee.com. I am a member of their exclusive coffee club, and I also get this big bag right here of Silencer Smooth delivered every month. You can go click on your favorite roast and set your schedule for delivery, and then bam, there it is on the front doorstep every single month. It is absolutely awesome. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, veteran-founded, veteran-run. Go check them out, blackriflecoffee.com. Elias Kafori. Eli is a retired special operations combat medic and entrepreneur. Born in Beirut, Lebanon, he and his family escaped the civil strife of his homeland and immigrated to the United States. He became a naturalized American citizen and served for over two decades in the United States Navy. Much of his career was spent at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, where he deployed multiple times as a combat medic. Here's Eli. Are your earliest memories, had things deteriorated like when you were born? Uh, or do you have stories of how it was prior to things deteriorating? Um, did people talk about how things used to be? I mean, it was Paris of the Middle East type of a, a situation back then before things started to, to deteriorate. Do you have any memories of that before um, uh, shelling began, the fighting began? Absolutely. Again, it's much like uh, San Diego, you know, big, beautiful uh, green trees, mountains, you know, obviously we have the Lebanese cedar, which is on the, the flag. And, you know, I remember going with my cousins and climbing up those trees and the pine cones and those things were, I mean, they were like footballs. So you'd get these awesome pine nuts and, um, you know, the beach, like I said, just being out in the mountains with my cousins and, uh, I, you know, it was, it was great. Um, and then, you know, things started happening. Uh, where you, you, you know, even as a young kid, you, you learn to survive and you understand that you either, um, you know, play a part to blend in or, or you move with, <laughs> with haste and prudence, you know, to, uh, like, <laughs> Jeff, you know, I, I remember when I first, uh, was attached to, uh, it was first a, a Marine Corps unit, but then when I eventually got to the teams, you know, they're like, uh, you know, patrol, Hey, this is a danger crossing. I'm like, dude, I know all about this stuff. I used to have to do this to go to school, you know, like, <laughs> so, uh, a lot of that stuff paid off in the, in the long run. But I mean, certainly I, I remember, uh, a lot of beautiful things. And again, um, if you know any Lebanese people, they're, they're like perpetual warriors and that's all you hear. It's like, Oh, it used to be so beautiful. And you know, this and that, and, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's a shame. Uh, it just shows you what, what can happen when, um, politics and outside entities, you know, I mean, again, you're a student of geopolitics, you understand that you essentially in that neck of the woods have proxy wars between Iran and Saudi and, and Lebanon just happens to be a battleground and, and close to Israel. So, um, you know, perfect breeding ground for a whole bunch of people to do nefarious things. And then the people just are along for the ride. Yeah. It, did, did that stuff carry over to school? Were there like uh, factions in school? How old were you when you guys took off? Yeah. Um, memories of that? Yeah, no, in the school. So the school is French. Um, it was, um, you know, much like most of the Middle East and Africa. It was like England and France playing with mm -hmm. who owned what, right? And so Lebanon um, had a lot of French influence. And, and so the schools, I was in a uh, French speaking school. And, um, you know, as a child, I, I don't recall you know, a lot of that happening. I do remember, you know, like my, our teachers would walk around with a rifle slung on their shoulder and, you know, um, 
keep, keep the kids safe. Right. It was awesome. And, and, you know, that it tended to be because, you know, with the children in those schools, you, you would have a mix, right. Representative of the society that lives around the place. So it was like, everybody knew, um, regardless of what side they were fighting on and for what reason, like don't mess with the school. Cause I, I know kids in there, you know? Wow. Um, but of course, uh, I'm sure just like we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, there are people that will stoop that low, but, um, you know, the teachers did their best, but I, I remember it as a, you know, it was a pretty happy experience, if you will, nothing bad from school. So, Jeez. and then, uh, like the shelling, uh, so you, you remember that one, obviously that landed, landed close, but do you remember a distinct time when there was like a shift, you know, kids are very perceptive when there's uh, when there's problems in the house, whether it's personal with parents or professional with one of the parents' jobs or something like that. You can sense the the tension. Um, I'm sure families did across the nation at the beginning of COVID when families got together, or the kids heard their parents whispering in the kitchen about, hey, I don't know if they're going to have this job tomorrow or, you know, just worrying about all these different things when everything was so uncertain in like March, April of 2020. Um, but do you remember like a shift when you were a kid as far as people getting more worried, your parents getting more worried, those conversations? Did you sense that as a kid or were you just running around, jumping out of windows and climbing trees and, <laughs> you know, throwing pine cones and like, oh, what's happening? What was that explosion? Or were you like, did you sense that something was changing? and that, hey, we might have to leave this place and my parents are acting a little differently. Do you, do you have that sense? Yeah, for me, there was one specific moment where I remembered like, so, okay, something's up here. You know, obviously your parents will do all that they can to, in your familial unit, if, if you have a, a strong structure around you, will do all they can to, um, you know, make it normal, so to speak, for the kids, right? So that they don't have to deal with the stuff that the adults, like my you know, I have older cousins and, you know, uncles uh, that were, you know, going out on patrols and stuff. And, and even still now to this day, um, a lot of them don't, we don't talk about those stories. It's just mm. something that, that happened, you know, and, and um, you know, they were doing their part to, to keep us all safe. But for me, I was on a, um, a walk with my uncle and I had a little schnauzer and we're walking along and we come up to a couple of guys with AKs. And with no warning, a dude just walks up and blasts my dog's head. And I'm holding on to the other end of the leash. And, um, you know, he, they essentially called us out as, as Christians. And he was like, get back to the rocks. You, you came out from under, you know, get out of here. You're next. And so my uncle is like, he scoops me up and, and he's like, you know, Oliver got bit by a dog, uh, snake. Oliver got bit by a snake. And I'm like, Hey bro, I just, I just saw that, you know, like that was no snake. So he was, even in that moment, uh, he was trying to, you know, protect me and, and have me think that, you know, something happened to the dog of a more natural cause, if you will, not that some, you know, coward just blasted some kid's dog in the face, you know? So that to me was like the, the first moment. And, and even seeing all the adults um, try to kind of like reframe that experience for me, mm. worried about like me, you know, having uh, damage or something from that. I don't know. It, it was yeah. reframed as this, this whole other thing. And I was like, man, something's going on here, you know? And, and I think I was, I was probably five and a half, six when that happened. And so I was old enough to understand, like you mm -hmm. said, to be in tune with what's going on around me. And, and to, uh, to have seen that obviously with my, my own two eyes. And, you know, um, I just remember, you know, like being in his arms and him, him you know, moving, running and, and like telling me uh, that the dog got bit by a snake and he was screaming because we were both deaf, you know, from the AK blast right up close. 
Um, and I was just like, man, something's going on here. But yeah, that for me, that was the moment. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's certainly significant. What? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so they call in law enforcement a clue. Uh, might, <laughs> something might be going on. Yeah. Did, um, yeah. How long after that did you guys pick up and, and leave? Um, it was a few more years after that. My, um, oh, wow. So my, I had family, aunts uh, and uncles that were here in the States uh, on my mom's side as uh, au pairs and, and mm-hmm. uh, things. So we were able to come visit, um, you know, on, on some travel visas, but uh, we could never stay. And then obviously with what was happening in, in Lebanon, um, you know, immigrating from Lebanon at that time was damn near impossible. So, um, you know, it, it, it took some time to be able to, to get out of the country. Like I said, that one instance with, uh, you know, putting my sister's high chair through my cheek and, and tumbling down the stairs was was kind of all my my mom and dad needed at that point mm-hmm. to say like okay we it's time for us to get out of the country and so um you know we went to sweden uh, my mom's family obviously is there and, and eventually came to the east coast of the u.s where where my mom's uh, sisters were and that also facilitated my dad uh in his career being a, a transcontinental pilot to be near some of the big uh, airports on the east coast so you know, JFK, BWI, LaGuardia were kind of the and Newark were the ones that he flew out of the most of. So that's kind of the area that we we eventually settled. But um, by the time all that was said and done with, I was uh, you know just shy of nine years old, I think, by that time. Wow. And uh, then, so when you guys make that trip to uh, to Sweden, what would you take things with you? Like, you pa- are you packing up like a move, or you like grab suitcases? We're going, and we're not telling anybody we're not coming back but we're not going back. Like, did you know you weren't coming back or did you like have a have movers and was it a normal thing or was it like, Hey, pack one bag. We're going to the airport. We're saying we're taking a trip, but we're not coming back to this place. Like, what was that like? Yeah, no, from what I recall, it was just like, Hey, let's get some stuff and we're getting out of here. Eventually in time, I do remember in the U S like having some furniture that, that looked familiar. And, and I think just with my dad traveling, um, you know, especially when he was flying cargo routes, he was able to, you know, get some things, but, you know, all credit to my mom and dad, I couldn't even imagine what that must be like, just picking up my kids and going and coming to a place and starting with nothing, you know, but that's the beauty of this country that I think is lost on most of the people that that are born here, you know? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, that appreciation certainly is, is not there in a large segment of the population. Um, how long were you guys in, in Sweden then before you, you not long here? Yeah, not long. It was more like a, you know, pit stop. Okay. So, so <laughs> not know, long enough to go to school and get settled no, there in order to no. pick up and go again. So the plan was always go, we're going to go to Sweden. We're going to turn around and head to the United States as soon as we, as soon as we can. Yep. So once uh, that was, uh, you know, approved, I, I remember, and I think I've shared this with you before, but, um, you know, we landed in, in JFK, I believe it was, or LaGuardia. It was somewhere in New York. I want to say JFK. And uh, not to not to date us, but uh, that was back in the days where you and I remember walking down steps out of an airplane, not onto a jet bridge. And, and so, um, you know, we land on the runway, we're walking down the steps and, and um, you know, I haven't even talked to my dad about this in a long time. I, I wonder if he even remembers, but it was like he was waiting for my foot to actually touch the tarmac. And as soon as my foot touched, I feel this big, you know, gorilla mitt on my shoulder and squeeze. And he puts his, you know, mouth right down to my ear and he's like, don't ever forget this step. And then that was it. And I was like, okay, this is serious. Like, where are we? You know, it's America. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. But 
that stuck with me. And then throughout my entire childhood, my, my mother and father just inculcated it within me that, you know, this was somewhere uh, really special and um, it was going to, you know, provide for our family. Like, unfortunately, um, Lebanon was unable to. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation. They crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Thank you for tuning in to the danger close podcast an ironclad original presented by Navy federal credit union links to full episodes and books can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed these conversations, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. My collaboration with KC Cattle Company is out. Now, Kansas City Cattle Company, veteran-owned and operated. There are two exclusive Jack Carr bundles. One is for the whole family, and that includes their award-winning Wagyu uncured beef hot dogs. And a second bundle option, which is my favorite, includes something special. A massive Wagyu tomahawk steak and a cross tomahawks branding iron. So you'll be able to add the cross tomahawks logo to all of your steaks. It's awesome. And you can go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop to check that out. But hurry, because they are going fast.